Hello, Connection Point family. It's so great to see you on this Labor Day weekend. And whether you're here in person or watching online, it is great to connect with you today. I am looking forward to sharing with you a message called Through the Eyes of Jesus from Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, please open it. And in just a few minutes, we're going to unpack this great scripture together. Now, you know, it's hard to see things from another point of view, from someone else's perspective. My little dog, Nugget, only weighs six pounds, and she's only about six inches tall. So people talk about curbing your dog. Well, when I curb my dog, the curb is as high as she is. So I wonder sometimes, what does the world look like from her perspective? And then I think about my wife Candy and I and all the years that we have spent together. We just celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary last week, just a few days ago. Now this is what we looked like 45 years ago. I don't think we could have imagined what it would look like 45 years later to look like this and then to have to be wearing masks on our wedding anniversary. So our perspective now is a little different than it was back then. And now we have grandchildren. Our little three-year-old granddaughter lives in a tiny apartment in New York City, and because of the pandemic, her mom and dad have been working from home for the last five months. Well, the other day, my granddaughter had the living room of the apartment all to herself for an hour or so, and it was very quiet. My daughter sent me this picture because she thought it was pretty funny. She came out, and this is what their apartment looked like. My granddaughter is sitting back here with this look on her face like, well, everything looks normal to me. Everything looks great. She kind of tore everything up. But when you're three, that's the perspective that you have. It's really hard to see things from somebody else's point of view. So if you grew up in the city, it's hard to understand what it's like to be a farmer producing crops. If you watch football on television, that's a lot different from the perspective when you're down on the field getting tackled by a 300-pound defensive lineman. I watched this, Indy, the, this year's Indy 500 from the convenience and comfort of my living room. And I really enjoyed the race. It was fun to watch those cars, but I'll tell you, if you're down there in the race car, it has to be a very different perspective when you're zooming around the course at 200 miles an hour. And right before the race, the Air Force Thunderbirds flew over the track at 500 miles per hour. Can you imagine? And they're really not very far apart as they fly. Imagine what it looks like. It's beautiful from down here, but imagine what it looks like from up there. Actually, sometimes it's very helpful for us to see things from someone else's perspective, especially if they look at things differently or they're from a different culture. One time, my wife Candy and I were driving to a church where I was going to be speaking, and we took with us an international student from the country of Myanmar. He's a very kind, polite young man. He was sitting in the back seat while Candy and I sat in the front seat. We stopped for gas. I got out, pumped the gas, and when I got back into the car behind the driver's seat, in the driver's seat right behind the steering wheel, I was grumbling about the price of gas and how much it was costing to fill up my car. After I grumbled a little bit, it got quiet, and I heard my friend from Myanmar, I've heard his voice quietly from the back seat simply say, in my country, most of us don't have cars. Well, it kind of puts things into perspective. When you see things through someone else's eyes. 
Now, here's a question for you. What about God's perspective? How does the Lord see you? How does the Lord see me? How does the Lord see things? You know, the Bible says the Lord is watching everywhere, keeping his eye on both the evil and the good. In Psalm 139, David prayed and said, God, you saw me before I was born. One translation says, he, he saw my unformed body. God didn't even need an ultrasound to do that. From the time you were first conceived until this moment in your life and on into the future, God sees everything. Nothing that you're going through in 2020 has been unknown to him. He sees the hardships that you face. He sees the sacrifices that you make. He sees the burdens that you bear. In fact, it's very important to remember, he sees when you are desperate. There's a story back in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 16 about a woman named Hagar. She was pregnant and she was alone and she was out in the desert in a desolate place, but the Lord spoke to her there. And it says in Genesis 16, 13, that thereafter Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. So she was in a desperate situation. She was alone in the desert, but she really wasn't alone because God saw her there in that desolate place. I remember one time when my wife traveled out of state and I went back to the Indianapolis airport to pick her up and she arrived and went to gather up her baggage and then she headed out to the terminal where I was driving up. There are a lot of people there, a lot of people coming and going. And she texted me and said, I don't see you. And what she didn't realize was I saw her. So it was no problem. Even when we think that God doesn't see us, he, he, he does. Even when we don't see him, he's seeing us. I remember when my daughter, Michelle, graduated from high school there were hundreds of people in the arena where she graduated, hundreds of graduates, thousands of people in the stands, but all of these graduates down milling around on the floor were all wearing the same caps and gowns, so they all looked alike, but it didn't take me long to find my daughter. She stood out to me even though everybody else was wearing the same clothes, the same caps and gowns. That's what a father does when he loves his kids. He sees them and he can pick them out of a crowd. If you want to know how God looks at you, you got to get to know Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't just see crowds of people. Jesus sees people in crowds. He sees you. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So if you want to get to know what God is like and how he sees you, this is where Luke chapter 7 comes in. Now, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all tell us wonderful things about Jesus. But Luke chapter 7 stands out to me because it's kind of like a prism that when the light shines through it, the light just separates into all these different dimensions, all these beautiful colors. And if you go through, as we're going to do in a few moments, Luke chapter 7, you just see different facets as the light shines on the character, the power of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the chapter, the first character that we're introduced to is a Roman centurion. This guy was a rugged soldier. He was very self-sufficient, you can imagine. He was skilled with swords and spears. He commanded a hundred men. 
But you know, even if you're really strong, there are times when you reach the end of your rope, especially if there's somebody you care about and they're hurting and you don't seem to have the power to fix it. Well, this centurion, this powerful, self-sufficient soldier must have been feeling really desperate because he had somebody in his household that he really cared about. A beloved servant of his was sick and about to die. The situation was desperate. And somehow the centurion had heard about Jesus just enough to know that he needed to turn to Jesus in his time of desperation. Now we know that Jesus by this time was attracting large crowds and I can't help but wonder if maybe the Roman army dispatched this centurion as sort of part of a security detail that he had to go out there and help do some crowd control to make sure that nobody was doing something they shouldn't when all these big crowds gathered to see Jesus and to hear Jesus. But one way or another, the centurion knew enough that in his desperation, he needed to turn to Jesus for help. So he sent some messengers to the Lord and he sent word and he said, Jesus, I don't deserve to have you come to my home. But I'm a military officer and my soldiers do what I say. I know how this authority structure works in the army. And so he kind of, the the centurion kind of uses an analogy and he says, Jesus, you know how authority works too in the spiritual world. You have authority. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus was amazed at the faith of this centurion. And the Bible says in Luke 7 that that very same hour, the servant got well. Now, I love that story because it demonstrates Jesus' power. He didn't even have to go to the centurion's house in order to heal the servant. He just said the word and it happened. Jesus doesn't have to be physically present with you in order to impact your life. But this story also shows Jesus' compassion. When things look desperate, he will not turn you away. Have you heard the true story about the major league umpire named John Tumpain? He was in Pittsburgh for a Pirates game. And after lunch, he was walking near the Roberto Clemente Bridge over the Allegheny River. And he saw a woman climb over the railing of the bridge. She was going to jump. The umpire reached out, he grabbed her, and with help from others, they held on to her long enough for someone to call 911 and take her to the hospital. They saved her life. Now, when I heard that story, I thought, you know, we usually think of an umpire as somebody we just want to argue with, (laughs) is the rule enforcer. Maybe that's how you see God, just the rule enforcer or somebody you want to argue with. But in that woman's moment of desperation on the bridge, that umpire showed another side of himself. He held on to her and he saved her life. And I want to tell you, in these moments, in these seasons right now in 2020, when our mental health is being strained, when stress is great, when many people are even tragically having suicidal thoughts, I want to remind you that God sees you when you are desperate. Jesus demonstrated that for the centurion. Now, as we go on in Luke chapter seven, we see that Jesus sees us when we're grieving. The next thing that happens in Luke seven is Jesus visited a town called Nain, N-A-I-N. Some people say the word Nain means pleasant. 
but it wasn't a pleasant place on this day because the feeling of death was in the air. A man, evidently a young man, had died and there was a funeral going on. So as Jesus and his disciples approached the village, another group of people is coming out of the village of Nain and it's interesting because there's a whole different attitude and demeanor in the two groups of people as they approached each other on the road. Leading the funeral procession was the dead man's mother, and tragically, she was a widow, the Bible says, so she'd already lost her husband. Now she loses her son, and the Bible says that the boy who had died was her only son. So you can only imagine her grief. That day, these two groups of people were approaching each other on the road. There was this happy, excited group walking into town with Jesus, and there was a funeral procession with sad faces and many tears and wails and weeping, people coming out of town filled with sorrow. So these two groups are going to converge on the road. Don't you wonder what's going to happen when they meet on the road outside of Nain? Well, here's what happens. Luke 7, 13 says, when the Lord saw her, saw the widow, his heart overflowed with compassion. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is where it says, he saw her. He saw her. Jesus reached out, and the Bible says he grabbed the stretcher that was carrying the boy's body, and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the Bible says, then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. He was resurrected from the dead. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, a couple things here. One is, Jesus was a very interesting person to invite to a funeral. <laughs> Somebody pointed out that every time he attended a funeral, he raised the dead. But I love how it says that Jesus not only had the power to raise this young man from the dead, but he also gave him back to his mother. What a beautiful picture of Jesus. Now, he has resurrection power. For us, it's just a matter of timing. We have to wait to be reunited with our loved ones. But it's very encouraging to realize and comforting to realize that Jesus has the power to reunite a mom who's lost her son with that boy again. That he has the power and the compassion to reunite loved ones that day outside of Nain, there were no longer two groups of people, one that was happy and one that was sad. Now, there was one big celebration of life and victory because Jesus changed the funeral procession into a triumphal procession, and he still does that today. Because when we die in Christ, there is always hope. There is still a future. There is a forever future. Jesus sees your grief, and he alone has the power to make everything different, even when a precious loved one dies. You know what else Luke 7 teaches us? Jesus sees you when you doubt. When you doubt. Now, the next thing that happens in Luke 7 is that John the Baptist, the one we call John the Baptizer, John sent messengers to Jesus, and he asked a curious question. John asked him, are you, he sent these messengers to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, the Christ, the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? 
Now, if, you, if that puzzles you a little bit, you're in good company. It puzzles me. And I remember when I was a student in Bible college, I was taking a class on the life of Christ. And our professor, he was a man named Mr. Gill. He was a respected professor in our school. He was a very serious and deep thinker and not somebody you messed with. You know, we held him in awe and respect. <laughs> Mr. Gill was teaching and he read this passage. And I, I had never read that before. And I was very puzzled. So I raised my hand. He asked me what I wanted to know. And I said, Mr. Gill, I don't understand this at all. John was the one who baptized Jesus. John was the one who heard God's voice speak from heaven when Jesus came up out of the water saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John saw the spirit of God come down from heaven like a dove upon Jesus. So how could he have any questions? How could he have any doubts about it? And I remember Mr. Gill looked at me and he said, Mr. Faust, well, when he called you by your last name, you knew you were really in trouble. I said, yes. I started to kind of shrink down in my seat. He said, did you believe Jesus was the Messiah when you first accepted him as your savior? I said, well, of course I did, yes. He said, have you ever had any questions about it since? I said, well, yeah. <laughs> I've had a lot of questions about, about it. And Mr. Gill started kind of pounding on the lectern. And he looked at me and he said, Dave, let these people be real. These people in the Bible, let them be real. If you have questions, why don't you think they're allowed to have questions too? Well, actually, it's one of the most memorable lessons I learned in that class. Because the people in the Bible are real. And if you have questions and doubts, you're just like all these other people in the Bible who wanted to know. They wanted evidence in order to believe. In fact, if you get into the circumstances here, you can understand why John was having some questions. Sometimes what we call doubt is actually faith stress. It's faith under stress. And so doubts and questions come when we're really stressed out and our faith is put under pressure. What had happened to John? Well, a guy named King Herod decided that he was going to take his own brother's wife and steal her away from his brother. And so he was committing adultery with this wife of his brother. And John couldn't just let that go without a mention. So he rebuked Herod. He said, even though you're the king, that's wrong. You can't do that. Well, the king got mad at John and threw him in jail. Eventually, it cost John his life. He was beheaded there in jail. Now, if you had done the right thing and spoken the truth, and yet it got you sunk into jail and you were being persecuted for being brave and saying the right thing, that would be a test of your faith. So it's in that circumstance that John, with his face under, faith under stress, asks some questions and sends some messengers and says, I just want some reassurance here. Are you really the Messiah? And John got back some answers from Jesus. Jesus pointed him to the evidence. He told John's disciples, oh, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see and the, the lame are able to walk and those with leprosy are cured and the deaf hear and the dead are raised to life and the good news is being preached to the poor. Tell them what you've seen. Listen, if you have questions, Jesus doesn't reject you or push you away. He invites you to examine the evidence. So if you have doubts, look at the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. Look at the miracles he performed. 
Look at the positive changes that he has brought to society. Look at the fact that he rose from the dead. Christian faith does not mean believing in the absence of evidence. We believe because of the evidence. Jesus sees you and he loves you when you are in doubt. But he also sees you when you are playing games. Now, when I talk about playing games, I'm not talking about football and basketball. I love those games. In fact, during the pandemic, my wife and I started playing a lot of Scrabble. <laughs> she always beats me or usually beats me, and I think it's because she cheats. I'm not sure. But we like playing games. I'm not talking about that kind of games. It's fine to play games, but not to play games with God. Jesus said, to what can I compare the people of this generation? How can I describe them? Now, here's the analogy that Jesus used. He said, they're like children playing a game in the public square. They complained to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs and you didn't weep. Now, why would he use examples like that? Because in those days, children played wedding and funeral. That, those were games that they played because those were the main social activities, the big social events of the time. So Jesus uses this example to show how the religious leaders of his day were trying to play games with him, playing games with God. <laughs> they, uh, Jesus wasn't dancing the way they wanted. They were playing their song and Jesus wasn't doing what they wanted to do. He wasn't willing to play along. These guys knew the scriptures, but they were playing games with it instead of really following it. They knew the hard questions to ask other people. They knew how to even put Jesus on the spot. But it was almost like a game to them. They were playing around with very serious things. Now, one of them, one of these Pharisees, actually invited Jesus to dinner. It goes on in Luke chapter 7, and it says one of the Pharisees, and we, know, we learn later that this guy's name was Simon, he asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. You know, isn't it interesting that we often think of the Pharisees as adversaries with Jesus, but he was not adversarial toward them. He didn't like what they said. He didn't agree with what they said. He pointed out their flaws. He was very firm and direct with them. He was hard at, in things that he said, but he didn't hate them. He said things that were hard because he loved them. He was even willing to go to the home of a Pharisee. When the Pharisee asked him over to dinner, Jesus said, okay, and he went to his home and they sat down to eat together. So I want you to see, Jesus had run-ins with the Pharisees, but he loved them too. But this guy, Simon the Pharisee, you have to wonder, why did he invite Jesus to dinner? Was he serious about this? Was he really wanting to know about Jesus? Maybe he was like another Pharisee named Nicodemus. You remember him maybe from the Bible. He was curious and open-minded about Jesus. Nicodemus was. Maybe this Pharisee was like that. Or maybe he was a spy for Jesus' enemies and he wanted to interrogate Jesus and trap him in his words. What I hope was that this Pharisee, by having Jesus over for dinner, wasn't just playing games with him. Do you ever play games with God? Be honest. Do you ever go to church just enough to keep peace in the family, keep the family off your back? You ever learn just enough Bible verses to be dangerous, but you're not really taking it to heart or applying it in your life? Let me ask you a very direct question. Is it time for you to quit playing games and get serious about your faith? To get serious about bringing up your children to know the Lord? I have a friend who one time 
It's actually on a Sunday morning. His 12-year-old son just looked at him and said, Dad, why don't we ever go to church? For my friend, that was a wake-up call to him because he had kind of been playing games with it. And he said, you know what? I don't know why I haven't been really thinking about God. And that was a turning point for him spiritually. Is it time for you to be the kind of friend that God is calling you to be, the kind of husband or wife that God is calling you to be? Not just play games? Well, as the story goes on, an uninvited guest shows up at this dinner party. And let me tell you, this is not a game to her because she's had a rough life. It says, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. And her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now notice it says this woman had lived a sinful life in that town. We don't know exactly what she had done. Some people theorize she was a prostitute. It's clear that she had a reputation. Actually, though, I, when you think about it and really apply it to your life, you realize that you could describe any one of us by saying he lived or she lived a sinful life in that town because I've lived a sinful life and so have you. I've done things that have displeased God. You know, when we're talking about what the Lord sees, he sees the ugly stuff too. If you do a shady business deal, he sees. If you lie or gossip, God sees, he hears. If you click on a porn site, God sees. If you cheat on a test, the teacher might not see. You might not get a bad grade, but God sees. Adam and Eve tried to hide from the Lord in the Garden of Eden, but the Lord sought them out. Jonah tried to run from God, but God used a storm to get his attention and pull him back. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He sees you when you are playing games. But here's the thing. He also sees you when you are really desperately broken. Now, this woman that we've just had introduced in this story, did you catch the part where she stands behind Jesus and, and then she kneels down next to his feet and she's weeping and she's not just crying a few little tears, she's sobbing so much that the tears are just raining down and they're pouring down and they're getting Jesus' feet all wet. Evidently, this woman had been through a lot and there was something about the way Jesus spoke that moved her deeply. I can't help but wonder what Jesus talked about that evening. Maybe he was telling the guests at the dinner party how God is like a good shepherd who searches even when one sheep out of a hundred is lost that he goes out looking for it and when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and he tenderly, joyfully carries it home. Well, let me tell you, whatever that woman heard that night from Jesus, it moved her and the voice of Jesus ought to move us. A friend of mine cried all the way through a Christmas Eve service and it was a moment that God used to turn her life around. I've seen big burly men weep at their baptisms as they realize just how much Jesus had done for them. It's okay to cry. But let's face it, this was becoming a very awkward social situation. I mean, Simon the Pharisee had planned a nice dinner party. This woman shows up uninvited Jesus' feet are getting wet from her tears. There's no towel available, so she grabs the only towel she can find, which is her own long hair. She starts kissing Jesus' feet, pouring perfume on them, and wiping his feet with her hair. <laughs> 
The Pharisee is getting really upset and disgusted. He's planned a nice evening and now this woman is wrecking everything with all her weeping and wiping and wailing. Simon's disgusted and he's skeptical, not just about her, but about Jesus. It says in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw all this, he saw what was happening. He said to himself, now notice that, he said to himself, he didn't speak this out loud. But he thought, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And notice, he said this to himself. But what he said to himself reeks of self-righteousness and faulty assumptions. He's thinking, well, if Jesus were a prophet, and he probably isn't, he would know, and he evidently doesn't, what kind of woman this is. And surely, if he knew what kind of woman this is, he wouldn't let her get near him and touch him and be so close to him. But the fact is, Jesus knew exactly what kind of woman she was. The problem was, the Pharisee didn't know what kind of savior Jesus is. So in response, look at Luke 7, verse 40. It says, Jesus answered his thoughts. Oh, what an interesting thought. What an interesting verse. Jesus answered his unspoken thoughts. He didn't say this out loud. He was thinking it to himself. But the Lord sees what you're thinking even when you're just talking to yourself. It's startling to realize the intimacy of Jesus' knowledge of this man. And so, in response, Jesus went on to tell a little story. And the story, in summary, was about two men who owed a lot of money. One owed a hefty amount in today's currency, let's say, $5,000. That's a hefty amount to owe. Another guy owed, let's say in today's currency, maybe $50,000, 10 times as much as the other one. They, they both owed a lot of money, and neither one, the guy who owed $5,000, could not pay it off. Neither could the one who owed $50,000. And so the lender graciously, mercifully just said, I'm just going to cancel both of your debts. You'll just bo both be debt-free now. So Jesus tells this story, and then he says to Simon the Pharisee, so Simon, which of the two do you think will love the moneylender more? The one who let, who let him off the hook for $5,000 or the one who let him off the hook for $50,000? And Simon the Pharisee said, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. The one who had way more canceled would love the lender more because his debt was bigger and that was forgiven. And then Jesus dramatically turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, I just want to pause there for a moment. We've been talking about seeing things from someone's perspective. This is a powerful question, Jesus asked. Do you see this woman? It's a great question because the fact is Simon didn't really see her. He saw that there was a woman there, but he didn't really see her. He was judging her by appearances. He was judging her by a reputation but he didn't really see her. Jesus did, but Simon didn't. Simon had a critical spirit. He looked down on this woman. He was even critical of Jesus. And let me tell you, if we're honest, we know there's even a little bit of Simon the Pharisee in all of us. Do you ever judge somebody by the color of their skin or the way they speak or the school they attended or the clothes they wear or the car they drive or the money they make? Simon didn't really see the woman. Simon saw a problem, but Jesus saw a person. Simon saw a nuisance, but Jesus saw a need. 
Simon saw a situation to avoid, but Jesus saw a chance to help. Simon saw only her weakness, but Jesus saw her faith. Let me challenge you, don't be like Simon the Pharisee. Don't listen to that harsh voice in your heart that puts other people down. Think about your own neighborhood. If you were to draw a one block circle around your house or apartment, how many of your neighbors do you know by name? Maybe a half mile radius. How many of your neighbors do you know by name? Let me tell you, I guarantee you, in light of what we've been learning here in Luke chapter seven, if you think of the people in your own neighborhood, I guarantee you there are people there within that circle who are feeling desperate like the centurion, who are grieving, sorrowful, like the widow whose son had died, who have questions about God, like John the Baptist, who are playing games with God, like the religious people in Jesus' day. And there are people like this woman who are broken and needing to find the Savior and the grace that only Jesus can give. How do you see the little kids in your neighborhood, the little boys and girls, the lonely old man and woman that come out to get their mail? How do you view people with mental illness or physical disabilities, people who have a bad reputation, people who, who do things for you that you take for granted, the people who work in restaurants and stores? How do you see them? They're not just machines that are there to perform services for us. They are people created by God that he loves. With have, they have hurts and dreams and families they care about. Do you see others as Jesus sees them? Remember I told you about my professor named Mr. Gill who taught me about John the Baptist and John's doubt? He was an incredibly smart man. He was a military veteran. So much to respect and I, I learned about him, about uh, the Bible from him. I learned so much from him. But underneath that gruff exterior that he had, I knew, I always knew that he loved me. Well, Candy and I heard that Mr. Gill was sick and near death. So we went to visit him at a convalescent home for veterans. And when we showed up, he looked at me with loving eyes and I knew he recognized me, but his mind wasn't what it used to be, this brilliant mind. I wheeled him around in his wheelchair. Candy walked with us and he kept asking me the same questions over and over again. Dave, where do you live? Where do you work? What are you doing? How many people at that school that you're leading? And I would say about a thousand students. And then about five minutes later, he'd say, Dave, where do you live? Where do you work? What do you do? How many students at that school? About a thousand students, Mr. Gill. Said it over and over again. Now, the people who saw him in that building probably just saw an old man who was feeble, and needed to be pushed in a wheelchair. But I wanna tell you, Candy and I saw a mentor, a friend, a man of God, a person who shaped our faith. When we left that day, Mr. Gill insisted on giving me the military ball cap that he was wearing, and I keep it as a reminder of this man who had so much influence on me because no matter what he looked like to others, I saw something different in him. Now, you know, Simon the Pharisee looked at this woman 
and he saw somebody who was just making a mess and it was socially inappropriate and she was crying and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Her actions were awkward and messy, but Jesus saw more love in that streetwise woman than he saw in the hard-hearted Pharisee. And Jesus looked at her and he looked at the crowd around the table and he said, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, <laughs> no denying that, they are many, and her sins have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. It's like the guys in the story with the $5,000 and the $50,000. The one that was forgiven more loves more. He appreciates it greatly. The more we realize our need for God's mercy and the abundance of his grace, the more we appreciate what God has done for us. The Pharisees didn't think they needed much forgiveness, so they really didn't love Jesus very much. But people like this woman love Jesus dearly because they realize they had so much to be forgiven for. Well, the next thing that happened was the men at the table, still skeptical, they said, who's this man that he goes around forgiving sins? Actually, that's a pretty good question. <laughs> and Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now, literally, this is more than just a little farewell. We read that go in peace, it sounds like goodbye and May God be with you. No, it was more than that. Because literally he said, go into peace. He forgave her sins and then he, it was like he opened a door to a new life for her and she could just go into this new realm of peace, something she had never experienced before. Go into peace. That's what happens when Jesus looks you in the eye and says, your sins, though they are many, have been forgiven. Has that happened to you? Have you experienced that where you've just come to Jesus and had him forgive your sins? And like the critics said, who is this that he even forgives sins? That's a great question and all of us really need to answer it for ourselves. We need to wrestle with it. Are you skeptical about Jesus? Are you playing games with him? Or are you receptive to him and open to him? A friend of mine manned a booth at a trade show he wanted his booth to illustrate hope. And his dad happened to be a master carpenter, a skilled carpenter. So my friend went to his dad and said, Dad, I need something that will look like hope when people come through my booth at the trade show. So his dad built a beautiful lighthouse with a light on top. And later when my friend was putting the display away after the trade show was over, he accidentally knocked over the lighthouse. It fell and the light on top broke. And my friend didn't have the heart to tell his dad he had broken the lighthouse that his dad had worked so hard on it. So he just took it and packed it away and hid it in the attic. Years later, his dad said, what about that lighthouse I built for you that time? My friend was embarrassed. He said, dad, it's broken. It, it's packed away in the attic, forget it. And his dad said, bring it to me. And my friend shook his head, he hesitated, and he said, no, dad, I ruined it, I don't think it's fixable. But again, his dad simply responded and said, bring it to me. So my friend got the broken lighthouse out of the attic and he took it to his dad, and a few days later, his dad showed up with this beautiful lighthouse repaired and painted, complete with a light that worked again. And that lighthouse is now, this is it, it's bolted on the dock right next to a lake where my friend gets to go out once in a while on a boat. Friends, I wanna tell you, 
Luke chapter seven is like a prism that shows Jesus in wonderful light. And it lets us see that the Lord sees us in our desperation. He sees us in our grief, in our doubt, in our game playing, in our brokenness. He sees all of that. And he simply says to you, bring it to me. And you say, oh, you don't realize what a mess I've made. And he says, bring it to me. And if you do, he'll make you new again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're amazed at how well you know us. And then we're even more amazed at how deeply you love us. Help us to see others through the eyes of Jesus. This is our prayer in his name.